As you listen to this, I own about 50 Tupac Shakur-related books, ranging from Got Your Back by His Old Bodyguard to The Women's House of Detention by Hugh Ryan. The bed in my office is covered with Tupac folders. I've interviewed about 300 people related to Tupac, and I have three more scheduled for this afternoon. In short, I am drowning in Tupac research. And when I'm drowning, I tend to complain. A lot. I'm losing my mind. I can't handle this. I'm overwhelmed. This will never get done. This is my worst book ever. But then I've been thinking about something my friend Jonathan Eig, the author of King, A Life, said recently when he was a guest on this show. I asked if he ever looked at the barista and felt envious. He thought I was crazy. I'm getting paid to earn a PhD in Martin Luther King, he told me. I'd pay for this. And ultimately, that's how I feel. And that's how I'm feeling about Tupac Shakur. It's hard and it's long and it's daunting. And I pay to do it. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers, Sing and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is Justine Harmon, the former Glamour and L editor and writer and the creator of a shitload of kick-ass podcast series, including one that I've really come to love, Killed, the podcast where journalists recount pieces they reported and wrote that for one reason or another never ran. This is episode number 314. Let's sing some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks. And nobody cares about your stupid TV show. Okay, Justine, one of my favorite things just happened. You and I, both journalists, been around a while, been around the block, done some things. Sure. And when we started this podcast, um, you have some publicists who are, who are helping you out, which is cool. And they were all on the podcast with us. Okay. And they were like, there's a little bit of this moment of like, hey, is it okay if we stay? Mm-hmm. And I was thinking in my head, no, not, not really. And I feel like every journalist goes through this, right? This moment. And I saw the look on your face too, which is a, a look of kind of understanding. Uh-huh. Um, wait, I'm actually uh, curious, just apropos of nothing, because you've written for a lot of magazines, you've done a lot of celebrity profiles, et cetera, et cetera. What's your philosophy on the publicist sitting in on the meeting with you in general? Yeah, I don't think I have a hard and fast rule. I mean, I recently did a very high profile celebrity um, profile (laughs) Um, where the publicist and I spent a lot of time before the actor themselves was ready for the interview. So like we kind of became pals and it's always, you know, there's like a bit of like, hmm, but I, I liked her and she asked if it was cool if she stuck around, which is not really a question. It's more of like a statement posed as a question. And um, I've learned how to just sort of do it with them there. Like it's sort of a dehumanizing practice, I suppose. But I was a publicist for a couple of years out of college. It was the only job I could get. Um, I graduated college in 2006, which was not a good time for journalism. So I spent two years as an assistant to a celebrity publicist. Um, So I don't know. I see both sides of the coin. I also think ultimately journalists are just going to do their thing. So they could have stayed, I think, whatever. No, but I, you know, I was, I was happy not to be the person who makes the call for once (laughs) to just sit here and be like, oh my God, why are they here? Like that was easier for me. Um, But ultimately I think, um, unless it's some bulldog who's there to shut down some, you know, impolitic question or whatever. uh, It's just largely, uh, there's not a lot that can stop the conversation from going down. So 
I don't have like a hard and fast rule, but if I felt like I was in a situation where the person was like, uh, we're not going to answer that or whatever, I would probably be like, all right, this isn't going to work. Uh, Wait, have you ever had publicists sit in where you're like, where you feel like their presence actually impacted something? Yeah. With politicians. Um, I think there's an eye contact component that is not helpful. Um, when someone is, you know, getting off the script or whatever, but, um, Ultimately, I think it's just, uh, I don't know, everyone needs to have a role and, you know, something to do. I, I, I don't know. I don't necessarily think it matters, but I was happy either way. That's <laughs> not a good hey, answer. <laughs> fascinated by something, again, the yeah. rambling nature of this podcast. You, you, sure. you come out of college, 2006, the economy kind of sucks, the job market sucks. Yeah. Two years as an assistant or a celebrity publicist. Right. What does that look like? Well, I'm still very good friends with my old boss, Marla, who is the coolest celebrity publicist you'll ever meet. Marla, I won't say her last name because she's that low key. Um, But she, you know, for me, I had never had a full time job. So I was probably a terrible employee. And this is a very slippery role where you're kind of you're out. You're with young celebrities. You're on red carpets. You're at events like there was definitely a cool upside where I was like, I'm special. I'm a chosen person. Um, but then the role is very humbling because you're basically just holding that person's, you know, a celebrity publicist. When you're the assistant, you go to events with the talent. You're like, I have so-and-so and you're walking down the red carpet and, you know, people choose to engage with them or not. But I found, um, you know, it's not a super creative role, um, but you do learn a lot about how the sausage is made, about how talent um is reached or not reached via these gatekeepers and sort of the machine on the other side. So when I became finally a magazine editor and worked at a lot of women's and celebrity magazines, including People and Elle and Glamour, I was always in a position where I was dealing with publicists and trying to extract what I wanted from a celebrity or get them to say yes to my pitch. And I thought it gave me an edge a little bit because I kind of knew what the vetting process looked like. So, you know, putting all the information in the ask, how much time you would need, like little obvious things that go a long way though. So, I mean, ultimately I think I was a terrible publicist, um, far too precocious and inquiring and needy and like (laughs) not at all what someone would be hopeful to have on their side when they're trying to navigate the waters. But um, I, you know, I am in... uh, I have a lot of respect for the work and for the grind. And my boss at the time, Marla, still does it and has some of the most famous clients in the world. Um, and she's great at what she does and she's wonderful at it. But I, after two years, was like, I can see, I think everyone was sort of like, whew, that's a relief. <laughs> like We don't need her anywhere near this on that side. So um, yeah, but I'm kind of like a scab. Now I've seen both sides and it, it, it has it has benefited me. For a while, I felt behind because... I worked there from 2006 to 2008, then I quit. And then I went back and interned at L Magazine at 24 for free. And Wait, what do you mean for free? I interned for free at 24 years old. Wait, time out. You come out of pen. The yeah. dream, yeah. pen education. Correct. You had a job working for celebrity publicist. Yeah. And then you interned for free. Yeah, I did. I mean, it was 2008 when I quit too. So that's literally the worst time to have given up gainful employment. I mean, I had very supportive parents, still do. And um, I was passionate about magazines to the point of like distraction. I mean, 
really, really invested in the making of them. I loved every minute of making a magazine. I love the specifications of the layout, of having to fit words, you know, of not having a widowed word on a line, of a perfect deck, a perfect head. Like, I always knew that, like, the persnickety nature of making magazines would appeal to me. And I was seeing the window close and close and close and close for magazines. You know, even when I started, I didn't work at L until 2012. And the magazines were still this big. Like, they really were. They were doorstoppers. So I got in right at kind of the last gasp of advertising. But I was hard-headed about it. I was like, this is all I've ever wanted is to work in the features department at a magazine. And so I worked at Al as an intern and I started blogging. I had my own blog, like it, I want to say GeoCities, but that's not right. Uh, but a WordPress blog. And I, it was like Jerry Maguire, like I would blog. No one gave a shit. No one was reading it except for my friends. I laminated and created myself like a, you know, a clipbook of recent blog clips and submitted it to everyone everywhere and finally got a call from Time Inc. And they were like, okay, you're crazy, but this is interesting. And we had, they had a guy there. His name is Mark Golan. He used to be the editor in chief of details back in the nineties. Ah, details. <laughs> yeah. Up details in heaven. <laughs> he is like, yeah, I know he's um, I don't think he works in publishing anymore, but he was like the the editorial lead for all of their style and entertainment websites. So like people.com, EW.com, um, InStyle.com. And he was like the group lead. And he dealt with like a lot of the high profile, like the, you know, I can't remember who was there at the time, but like the David Granger types, you know, like, so I got a lot of exposure that way. Um, but I was just an assistant there at People for two years. And then that internship at L came back around because I got a job in the features department at L. And then I was there for five years. And then a glamour for three. Um, and I've been freelance since 2019. Also a terrible time to kind of <laughs> jump ship. But hey, you're this kid coming out of college. Your dream is magazines. My dream coming out of college in 94 was Sports Illustrated. Always Sports Illustrated. The dream of Sports Illustrated. Mm -hmm. But when I got there in 96, it wasn't obvious that magazines were about to disintegrate into the dust. No. When you started on this path of dreaming, and really started actually living this dream at the same time, it would seem like you're almost like the last shopper in a mall and the mall is yeah. closing. I know, but I was still a mall kid. Like the work is the same. The ethos of trying to put out the best magazine you can under whatever restrictions are upon you. I mean, you really did see the bleed. You saw how, you know, even over the years, I, the 10 years that I worked in magazines, like the, the spending, the events, the everything that made it feel so special you know, is slowly being leached out of it. But again, I, I something about the nature of the work, there's limits to it. You know, it can't go on for, forever. You have deadlines, got to close the magazine. There's only a finite amount of pages. You're fighting for the jump with other journalists. Like there's something about it that just felt very clean to me. Whereas the endless expanse of the internet and podcasting, there's no, there's no, yeah, contours, you know, there's no limits. So I, I find that, intimidating, but I did not find, I always liked, even as the budgets were shrinking and, you know, you could pay lighter writers less and you're becoming more of a bullshit artist in terms of what you can and cannot do. Like, I don't know. I still liked the process. I liked the challenge of getting it out the door. Was there a moment you could look back at when you're either at Glamour or, L or people are somewhere and you're like, fuck the magazine world is just. Yeah. Not I mean, 
I think for me, I was on maternity leave with my daughter, who's now four, but that was when Glamour shuttered the print magazine. And I was on leave, which is just, you know, a heartbreaker. You know, I went back after leave and we talked a lot about what my role could look like. I was the features director. So anything that was, you know, the cover story or anything that was, you know, over a few thousand words, that was my domain. And trying to translate that to the website, um, you could just sort of see that the writing was on the wall. And I remember I had, I think I was like special projects director for a minute, which like, I didn't know what that was. So I just... It seemed like it was finally, finally like, okay. I mean, people are still journalists. People are still working at magazines, you know, New York Magazine. I'm working on a story for them right now, The Atlantic, um, you know, places, you know, New York Times Magazine. There's still great, great journalism happening. But yeah, it did sort of feel like, especially as always feeling a little self-conscious about working in women's magazines and how that sort of felt limited. It felt more and more so as time went on because SEO and advertisers and all of the things that keep the lights on were really dictating the scope of what we were able to cover and what kind of things were getting greenlit. And that, that to me was the death knell because I have weird ideas and they were always kind of fringe and um, strange to my editors, but you know, the people who got them, got them and it, it was exciting when they could work, but there really wasn't a lot of room for that anymore. It's actually very interesting. You say that really the first things that started to get off the chopping block were fringe and quirky yeah. ideas because they started re, you know, taking the metrics of every story and all you knew if you wrote about Miley Cyrus, it was going to have a million more reads than quirky mountain home of blank. You could write a terrible story about Miley Cyrus that would probably do fine, you know? And so that betting at the beginning, you know, when you have the Boston consulting group in on your pitch meetings, which we did have speaking of like publicists and stuff yeah. like that's when you start to realize, okay, like everything sort of has to fall somewhere near the middle of the chart and like something really like a swing for the rafters, unless you have someone who's like, I don't care if it fails, it's not going to happen, you know? And so there were always these examples that we would, like at Connie Nast, we would point to as an example of something that worked that no one anticipated would. Like there was this Brendan Fraser profile that GQ did like five years ago before he came back with the whale or whatever. It was this very strange piece where the writer went to like his farm and Brendan was like feeding the animal. I don't know, for whatever reason, it did gangbusters. And so people would always point to that and be like, have an outside the box idea. Pick someone who doesn't have a project, you know, like really find that thing. But to anticipate the outside appetites of people, as opposed to just being like, how about Miley Cyrus wears a hat? Like, right. you know, you just get, you, it, their fatigue sets in. And so you have to sort of, yeah, you have to be more strategic and um, that, yeah, you lose a little of the, the magic there, I suppose. But um, yeah, it's sad to think about. Wait, let's depress ourselves real quick. I'm going to tell you a story. You tell me a story. Ready? Moment that pops in my head that is the craziest lavish magazine story that nobody under the age of 25 or 30 would understand now is when I was at Sports Illustrated, they would have come holiday time, a staff party that must have cost $600,000 where they would fly every staffer in to New York City, put them up, take them out to dinner the night before have this lavish party where where black town cars would take everyone home at the end of the night, wherever they were going. They had a carriage. It was in Central Park one year. They had a carriage to escort the people, to shuttle the people to the party. And also, I just want to say, 1996, when the Olympics were in Atlanta, Sports Illustrated, just because, took the entire staff to Atlanta 
Amazing. for a weekend in a hotel, go to whatever events you want, then had parties with athletes coming and talk the whole thing. It's a rap battle. What do you got? Okay. Well, mine's more, it didn't happen to me. It happened to my sister because right. my sister worked in magazines in the nineties, which is probably why I had this version of them. She's nine years older than I am. And so she worked at Vanity Fair um, after graduating from college in the late nineties. And uh, the black car thing really moved me. I don't know why, but like the line of black cars and like the ticket to bring to the car to be like, I'm important. Take me where I want to go. That really impressed me. I was like, oh man. And my sister was just an editorial assistant at Fanny Fair. She was the assistant to the managing editor, which is like uh, a sexy job you can have. But I remember she interviewed Edward Furlong um, and Omar Epps. And I was like, that is it. Like, that is what I'm doing. Those guys are A-list. Like, you are a star yourself. Um, so I think I got very strangely, like, enamored with that. But I do remember, even in the years at Glamour, like, we did a lot of big fashion shoots. And fashion was you know, a big part of these books. I don't know if you remember, there was one point where Glamour was like the cash cow for Connie Nass. Like it sure. was the most lucrative magazine ever. And Cindy Levy, who was the editor of Glamour for many years, a legend in her own right. She really had, you know, when she had the budgets and she had the power, like she could make a magazine that so many women loved. And it was really, you know, a breezy, great read, but fashion was really the cornerstone of that. We had a really robust fashion department, you know, two extremely chic fashion directors, like dressed to the nines and Celine. And it was all very exciting. But I remember one of the shoots we did, who was it? Maybe Margaret Quayley, who um, is like, I can't remember who her mom is, but. Annie McDowell. Yeah, yeah, beautiful actress, really talented. But we did a photo shoot with her. And I remember hearing later when like the layouts came in that there were these ducks that they wanted. It was shot at a farm and they wanted ducks on the farm. It was off season for ducks. So someone had to like, get ducks to come to look like they lived at the farm. And apparently the ducks showed up in a black car <laughs> and the ducks come out and they're shuttling the ducks out of the black car. Cause it was like, get the ducks, get the ducks. And the ducks come on and they put the ducks in the shot and Mar you know, Margaret's in her dress and she looks great. And they're like, you know what? The ducks aren't working. Get the ducks out of here. So then the ducks had to go back in the car, back to the other farm. I remember hearing about that and I'm like, what the fuck? There were like, paid for hired ducks and we can't even it was just it was like something got through you know somehow they freed up an extra five thousand dollars for the ducks that didn't even run but i remember being like we still got it we got ducks man black car that's rough yeah. even the ducks if the ducks were taken to that shoot today they'd have to hitchhike to get there it'd be very disappointing i know the ducks would have to pay their own way like i but yeah i don't i, I can't remember what the sh i can remember there were no ducks the ducks were just a maybe so i was still like uh, we've got we've got some wiggle room here, folks. Um, but I think really now that there's no ducks anymore, unless the, the farm had them. You know, you wrote a uh, you wrote a profile in 2020, so not that long ago, about uh, Dakota Johnson for uh, yeah. Marie Claire. And uh, your lead was Dakota Johnson is a lot like that proverbial duck. She appears serene, but just beneath the surface, she is paddling furiously all day and all night. I feel like the most insane anxiety about our world and our planet. She says in between bites of takeout salad. It's 2 p.m. on a Wednesday in late February, and we're sitting in the quaint two-bedroom bungalow just south of Hollywood that she uses as an office for tea time pictures. The whole vibe of the place is effortless Hollywood. A sunny front room is bare except for two framed posters from Johnson's Luca Guadadimo films, the 2016 drama Bigger Splash, and the 2018 thriller Suspiria. Oh, gorgeous films. In the bathroom hangs a surreal shot of Johnson's mom, the actress Melanie Griffith, and her ex Antonio Banderas gliding through a throng of photographers, et cetera, et cetera. Excellent story, excellent profile. 
Thanks. Here's what I'm fascinated by. The celebrity profile is one of my favorite things ever. And sadly, as a longtime sports writer, I actually haven't written that many quote unquote celebrity profiles over in a million athlete profiles, but they're different. Yeah. Where you get it's you get this time with Dakota Johnson. Oh, Dakota will meet you here, blah, 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 blah. Are those things fun to write or are they miserable to write? Well, this was for a specific situation because this was like late February 2020. So okay. the pandemic oh. was seemingly afoot. Dakota was very hip to the pandemic, unlike me. And we were planning to meet. I lived in New York at the time. I'd flown out to LA, which was great. I stayed with a friend because it's 2020. We were supposed to meet at the Chateau Marmont. And at meeting time, I like get a text from a publicist um, being like, actually, can we do it elsewhere? I think Dakota was like a little nervous about the crowds and, you know, germs and all that stuff. So I remember at the moment being like, are you kidding me? Um, like the audacity and like racing to go to this point to bedroom bungalow. I do remember I got there before her somehow and I'm sitting there and she walks in and she is a vision, an absolute vision, just so gorgeous and cute. And she has one salad and I'm like, we were supposed to meet for lunch. <laughs> like, right. I'm starving. Um, but like I, I, we talked actually a lot about the pandemic in that interview. And I remember going back and forth with my editor, who is um, just got named the editor in chief of InStyle, my friend Sally Holmes. And we were sort of like, what is this thing going to be? Like, how much should we talk about the pandemic? Like, is it a pandemic? Like, do we include it in the story? So I think we just sort of hint at it. But um, yeah, Dakota was like, no, thank you. I don't want to be like with throngs of people. That that interview, you know, was quick. Like how long would you say you had, if you had to guess? I think I had more time than I used because I was just sort of like, okay, I think I got it. Like, um, I think we were together for an hour. Uh, and she's an amazing, interesting, controlled individual. So it's not, even if there were a publicist there, I think I would have gotten this in quotes. Like she's old hat. Her mom knows what's up. Probably taught her a thing or two. This was a very sort of, um, I wasn't getting a ton out of, that that interview but I did my best and it was funny I tried to get quotes from Luca I, I'm probably saying his name wrong but I do love his films Guadagnino you know call me by your name and like um and he was in Italy and it you know I was trying to get these quotes like early March 2020 and finally I think he and his team were just like you know what we can't like no one cares about your profile so it was a weird time this thing this is the last you know, in-person interview I did for two years or something. That wasn't one of the ones where you leave and you're like, oh my God, that was incredible. I got the quote. I think I laughed and was like, did I get anything? Did she say anything? Do you feel that way a lot? Like whenever I read celebrity profiles, not yeah. whenever, but often, I I often think to myself, I bet the writer's more interesting than this, than this celebrity. Like- I it used to be like my very good friend from, I met her through Elle, her name's Holly Malay. She worked at Premiere back in the day. And she, you know, she would write 8,000 word profiles. She would spend three days, you know, nonstop with Billy Bob Thornton, like trashing hotel rooms and like going through his bank statements. Like that access, I think, informed what became the celebrity profile. But then as the access dwindled, the artifice and the premise is still there, but you're just sort of shoehorning in saccharine quotes that a publicist, you know, later has a problem with. Like, I think the idea of it was a lot more exciting, but as time went on, its wings got clipped a little bit. But 
I think originally the celebrity profile was like a loophole. Like you could just spend, you had, you know, endless funds. I always think about like almost famous, like don't let the band pay for anything. Like, I think that was true. I just never really got to do that stuff. Would it have been more surprising if Dakota Johnson actually said, oh, I knew we were going to meet for lunch. So I actually picked you up a salad. Would that be more surprising than her showing up with one salad? I gotta say, no, I was pretty surprised. <laughs> I just it wouldn't have, I mean, I raced to get there because it was like the time was happening, but she was late because she stopped to get lunch, but wasn't like I'm meeting someone for what was supposed to be a lunch. I don't mean to like call Dakota out. I'm sure oh. I wasn't thinking about it, but I was sort of like, huh? Like, I think, I, I think I was, I was a little like, man, uh, I was a bit surprised by that, but wait, you're going to like this. I'm being serious. This is a difference <laughs> between me and you. I think, well, I mean, there are probably many, but yeah. I'm an asshole. Right. And I okay. think my lead to that story would have been Dakota Johnson only has one salad. I mean, it would have never happened. They He's wouldn't not- have allowed it. No, that would have never happened. You got to play nice these days. That would be a good lead, but it uh, no, it would have never happened. I can say that pretty confidently. Uh, is it more, Editors not wanting to burn bridges with certain yeah. people. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I think celebrities have a lot of power now. You know, it wasn't until I can't remember when it was. InStyle put the first famous actor on a magazine instead of a model. It was the first fashion magazine to move off models and to put an actor. And I think the you know, and again, I had this experience as a celebrity publicist's assistant. Like that changed the paradigm. And, you know, for a long time, I don't know if it is like this anymore, but in contracts for movies, you'd have to do X amount of covers and this many, you know, exposures. And it really wrested the power from the journalists and put it squarely in the lap of the talent. And I think now, especially since magazines, you know, it's digital covers and the, and the readership has dwindled so much and people are juking the stats of how many people are reading things like, the talent doesn't need to do it. And so if they've agreed to do it and they've agreed to sit down for an hour and, you know, at least have somewhat of a free rolling conversation, like that's about as much as you're going to get for most of these magazines. And that's just kind of the new standard. Um, I'm sure some like New York Times magazine, you know, if Taffy Burdess or Ochner is profiling whomever, maybe that doesn't fly. But yeah, that's the exchange for pretty much. It's a pretty clean transaction. Do you feel like you are good enough where you are able to have the celebrity you're writing about forget that they're being written about? Yeah. I mean, not good enough, but hopefully engaging enough. You've got the way you're sort of like connecting, you know, ancillary topics and sort of making it feel like this is not, you know, an exchange as well. Like I do hope that I possess that, you you know, I'm a human and I, I am interested and I have seen the film and whether or not I liked it, I can't remember. But like when I really am geeked up over something and the person can feel it, it does feel like even the the strangeness of the situation sort of does go away, at least while we're together. And then you leave and you're like, I'll never see that person again. But I've definitely had moments where, you know, I've interviewed talent and later I heard from them or you know, we struck up a friendship that lasted for like a year or two, and then it slowly goes away too. Like, I do think authenticity lives there, but I I guess I'm good at making other people feel like it's true too. I don't know. 
If Dakota Johnson, if you're interviewing Dakota Johnson. She's listening to this, Dakota. No, I'm pretty sure she's not. If you're interviewing her and like midway through, it could be any celebrity, right? Yeah. And they're like, uh, blah, 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 blah. Man, my vaginal rash is just killing me. It's just killing me. Blah, 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 blah. And she goes on for five minutes about her vaginal rash. Could you use it? I mean, it depends who your editor is and what sort of agreement has been reached with you know, not only their PR, but the entertainment director or the booking director, you know, a lot of these celebrity interviews comes with, they come with caveats. Like you cannot talk about X, Y, Z. And you're told that at the outset, and then you're talking to the person and they're going on and on about their abusive X or whatever. And you're like, we're not supposed to talk about that. Um, Wait, what do you do? You, I mean, you talk about it. And then later you might find out from the entertainment director, like, oh, I heard so-and-so said all this stuff. We can't run that because there's a pending lawsuit or whatever it is. We're going to have to excise that. And then there's a bit of a fight and then ultimately you stand down and it doesn't really run. But I think that, you know, that's some of the nuance that gets kind of, not only does the quote get left on the cutting room floor, but the transparency about these transactions, about what can and cannot be said and what ultimately ends up in the piece, I think is interesting because it all kind of goes through this funnel and what you get at the end is, you know, as much as you can run within the contours of what the legal department says is okay, what the, you know, relationship will withstand. A lot of these PRs represent the person who's on the magazine cover, but then also someone bigger who a bigger magazine than yours wants in the future. And yeah. so are you really going to write about, you know, some up and comers vaginal brash when Tom Cruise is supposed to be on the cover of GQ next month? Probably not. So there's a bit of, bartering horse swap, you know, trading. But if someone free and clear is talking about their, their vaginal rash um, and you don't hear anything about it later and they didn't say, you know, this following bits off the record. Yeah, yeah, I'll use it. I'll do a whole paragraph about the rash. If you're in Ralph's like tomorrow and you see Dakota Johnson in aisle three, mm-hmm. you go up to her and you're like, hey, Dakota, blah, blah, blah. I would never. Wait, really? You're going to be like, hey, remember a salad? No, nothing. But then what would happen? She'd be like, oh, cool. Really nice to see you. And I'd be like, enjoy that monostat for your rash. Got to go. Like, <laughs> I don't know. No, I don't. I, I, unless I really feel like that person gives a shit about me too. I, I don't think I would put myself in the position to have that like moment where they're like, what? Who is that? I don't know. It's not worth it. But I'm out of it now. I'm a free agent. Uh, maybe if I were still the... Features director at Glamour, and I saw someone we put on the cover. Yeah, that'd be good for everyone to be like, hello from Glamour, but I don't have that affiliation. I'm just me now, and that doesn't feel big enough to me. <laughs> I just want to know if I see you in Ralph's, so I'm going to say hi. Is that cool? Yeah, you are cool. I'll say what's yeah. up to you. So you have made this transition to podcasting, and yeah. I'm actually fascinated by this whole thing because we are literally talking on a podcast. And I feel like when Serial came along and went, Psh! It was like, holy shit, podcasts are the new long form. This is going to be it. This is it. Yeah, for sure. And there's going to be shitloads of money and blah, blah, blah. And people are going to listen. You now work almost exclusively in podcasting. Mm -hmm. Where are we on that sort of, this is the most amazing thing ever and we're all going to get rich to this is horrible and oh shit, nothing is working. Where are we in this scale? I think we're closer to the back end of that paradigm. I think the bottom is pulling out on the dream a little bit, but I still think... You know, I think there's this notion of an always on podcast. Um, I imagine your podcast is more always on. Like uh, the limited series is where I think people miscalculated the ability to make money off the ads. 
I do think people are still trying to, myself included, create limited series that could lend themselves to screen. You know, the characters are big. The setting is visual. Um, that's still very much, not so much with Killed. Killed for me is like a passion project. I love magazines. I liked the idea. I liked the name and it not being about murder. Um, <clears throat> but I think people are very wary now. I think that idea, I do hear from like a lot of really impressive, amazing legacy journalists who are like, oh my God, what about a eight part series on crypto? And I'm like, yeah, sure. <laughs> like, I think that sounds like something you'd be really good at, but do I think you're going to have a ton of buyers begging to make your crypto show? No, probably not. I think it's really hard to sell something where the ending is known and it's your sort of also what people don't get about podcasting, I think, is that, okay, for each 30 minute episode, that's like 6,000 words, you know, 5,500 to 6,000 words. That's a feature length article. So you're going to do eight of those about the same topic. It had better be the most insane story you've ever heard. Like S-Town, which was obviously an offshoot of Serial. What was amazing about that podcast is they gave him the length of rope to sort of figure out what the story was once he was there. But now you kind of have to know everything. You have to know the ending. You have to know who you have access to, who's going to talk, how long they're going to talk for, what the quality of the audio is going to be, what the archival is. Like it, that same thing that happened at magazines where people were like, just get out there, see what they say. Don't let the band pay for anything. That's over. Um, and I, you know, I, the first podcast I did was at Glamour. Um, and it was based on, yeah, a story that I signed and edited with my colleague. It was sort of like a random thing and it turned into broken hearts, but we did not know what was going to happen with that podcast. We were sort of doing it in real time. It was an experiment for sure. And I think the experimental days are over, unfortunately, but they were brief anyway. I mean, I'm sure Sarah Koenig in retrospect is like, what the fuck was that? Like, you know, I don't, I doubt there was like a narrative arc established before they got in the booth or before she went to Lincoln Park and tried to recreate whatever happened at the back of that Best Buy. Like that was what was cool about that podcast. You were sort of like, it had like a Blair Witch Project element to it. It felt very ad hoc. I think things are a lot more, they do the cross benefit analysis before they even sign the long form. So things are just more businessy now and cheaper First of all, huge props for the Blair Witch Project reference. Thank you. Very nice. Did you see Blair Witch 2? No. I, I mean, Blair Witch 1 scared me so deeply. I remember it was like they had a website early. That, I mean, that movie must have come out when? In, when? When I was in high school. I remember they had this website. It came out in 99. So I was a freshman in high school. A very early website. And it had these trees. Oh, and, I remember this. Yeah. yeah scary fucking noises and it was very unclear if it was true or fake and i looked at that early website and was like so deeply afraid like great marketing really worked i don't know but again it was like the internet was so new and i lived i'm from dc so i lived in rock creek park that's where my mom's house is and it's like it looks kind of like the blair witch like where all that I, i was so scared um so that one really stuck with me so blair witch too no was that like about the making of Blair Witch or was it? No, it was a, uh, it was a follow-up back in the woods. I think oh. it was terrible. But Blair Witch 1, I feel like nobody, like my kid, if they oh. watch that on TV, they'd be like, what is this shit? This is terrible. Oh my God, I was really scared. I really thought it was scary. I still think it's scary, to be honest. I agree. 
Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I heard my daughter, Casey, who recently decided she wants to be a sociology minor. To quote the great New Jersey general safety, Gary Barbaro, sociology is the key to an enlightened society. I'm pretty sure Gary Barbaro never said that. You're right, but I bet he shops at royalretros.com to buy old generals jerseys, hats, and t-shirts. I guess, but what does that have to do with you being a sociology minor? Oh, to be so uneducated. So last night I was listening to Killed, which, don't be surprised, which readers should know is your your new podcast series and which you've called a passion project or at least sort of referred to as a passion project. And it's the nerdiest shit ever in the best possible way as a journalist, which is basically stories that were assigned and then were killed. And the episode I listened to last night was actually the saga of your story that you did, uh, I don't know, a decade ago, a little less than a decade ago about porn moms and- Uh Basically, the, uh, you, you had this great idea for a piece about mothers who kind of support porn stars. And it was this sort of thing and this movement. And you had this great idea for the story. And then the story wound up getting sh- killed and never ran. It obviously got me thinking about all the killed stories in my life. Yeah, you've got to come on season three. I got a good one, actually. I, re- I, <laughs> I wrote a story when I was a first time with your reporter at the National Tennessee, and I pitched uh, a story about condoms. And my editor thought it was going to be like condoms are fun and cool. And the whole lead was about me having sex with my girlfriend. And my editor is like, we're in the Bible belt. We can't run this. And I was like, God damn it. Um, lead to like, my partner only has one salad. <laughs> exactly. Okay. We've all been through this. We've all had stories killed. It's a yeah. traumatic experience. Why actually would you want to do a podcast, devote yourself to perhaps the most traumatic thing that happens to journalists? You know, it's funny. So I waited 14 episodes to talk about my own, you know, killed experience that sort of spurred the idea for the story. Um, Because, I mean, that's part of it. Like, I think there's this version of journalists who are like, you know, and a lot of the journalists who come on my show, like the first episode of season two is this Pulitzer winning journalist, uh, Paul Pringle, who exposed USC and the corruption there. And I mean, just brass balls on this dude. But most of us, or myself, uh, you know, I'm very sensitive. I'm neurotic. I take everything deeply personally. Like that's just my personality. So having that experience of someone shutting down my story and granted the, the stakes weren't as high as what Paul was dealing with. He's exposing, you know, some horrible underbelly at one of the largest institutions in America, but that affected me so profoundly that I was sort of like, am I any good? Should I keep doing this? Do I have what it takes? Um, you know, it affects your confidence. I think all of that is very heavily and handily explored in other disciplines like sports, you know, after I know Tiger Woods, but after Tiger Woods, very public fall from grace, you know, his game suffered. And people talk about that all the time. And people talk about all of the things that affected how someone else comports themselves professionally. And I think in journalism, it's sort of like an idea that you're just like on to the next one or that never happened or it happened because you did something wrong. Like, I think there's a lot of gray area there. And even what we're talking about, like what gets in the story and what doesn't get in the story. I mean, that affects how you view someone and what you think of them and what you take away from it and put in the world about them yourself. Like, all of that stuff is vital. And especially now when there are fewer and fewer opportunities for someone to get profiled, you know, honestly and unmercifully where the quotes are accurate and not taken out at the last minute because, you know, they have set the status quo. Like I think hearing about how these stories get made and 
what ends up on the cutting room floor is just as important as reading the story that gets made. Like, I don't know. I want to know exactly how these things, I'm obsessed with the process of how it gets made. So for me, it is depressing. And I, you know, I was sort of like, I don't want to talk about my own experience because I thought it was kind of stupid. And I was very humbled and pleased when my editor on the Porn Moms piece, Robbie Myers, who is a legend in my eyes, um, was willing to talk about it. She's one of the few editors I've approached for this podcast who are like, yeah, let's talk about why that story got killed. Um, and she was very honest about it and what she, you know, her views on it. And she her she spread very thin and I'm sure it wasn't a priority to her, but um, that was a very like healing conversation for me. So being able to do that for some other people too, like, I don't know, I've heard from other writers too, who, and all this uh, woman I used to work with, I won't say what her role was, but some woman I used to work with sent me some text messages recently that she was drunk uh, with her sister telling her about her killed story. And her sister was like, just DM the editor, just do it. And I was sort of like, oh God, that's not what we're doing. Uh, But she did. And the editor wrote back and was like, oh my God, I'm so happy to hear from you. That was a terrible time in my life. Here's why. Like, we're all just people doing our best. You know, some people are answering for the company. Other people are answering for what they believe to be the truth about someone. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of human error involved in journalism. And I think it's really important to talk about. Okay. I think Robbie Myers, I listened, obviously. I was actually mad at her listening to the podcast. I was like, I think you were too. You may tell me I'm wrong. I thought this was a fucking good story. Everything you read from the story was good. The topic is amazing. I thought it was like this, like, I don't know Robbie Myers, so it's easy for me to say. I thought yeah. it was this like magazine-y, a little bit holier than now, haughty, like reason to killing a story. Oh, I didn't like the blah, blah, blah. I was yeah. like, it's a fucking good story, period. It's a good story. It's an interesting topic. Nobody's done it. She's writing creatively. Like, I was pissed for you. Were you yeah, not? I was. I think there was more sort of infrastructural issues. I was working at L.com and we were, you know, this was when, I don't know, Troy Young, I don't know if that name means anything to you, but he was the head of Hearst Digital Media. He had sort of an unsavory end, but he basically took all of the digital arms of all the magazines, except for Esquire, because um, they like fought tooth and nail to keep digital and print together. But everyone else was sequestered into a different part of Hearst Tower. And we had our own line of command. And I was trying to write this story outside the purview of my digital role. And it was taking up a lot of my time and I was obsessed with it. And yeah, of course I was pissed. I wanted her to advocate for me and my story and to run it and to change my career and to win a glad media award or whatever the fuck I thought would happen. Um, But I don't think that she solely was able to, I think I wasn't her employee anymore. And I think, you know, she was trying to be diplomatic about that. I also think she wasn't really, you know, it got a million stories going on. This was fringe. This was weird. I was pretty green in terms of a long form piece. It just wasn't like a top priority maybe, but yeah, here you I mean, I, I was just glad she was willing to talk about it and not be like, Oh, I don't remember that story. Sorry. Bye. Like that could have happened. She could have done that. That would have been worse. Wait, when you, when you were talking to her and she said, first thing I thought of is this girl's a really good writer. Do you, do you think she was full of shit and just being nice? Or do you think she actually remembered thinking that? I don't know. <laughs> you are a really good writer. I'm not saying you're not. I'm just curious. Um, I mean, it felt nice to hear, to be honest. I didn't even care if it was bullshit. I remember 
my high school, the head of school now is my history teacher in high school. And he's now in charge of like soliciting donations from alum alumni. And we went out to lunch and he was like, man, you always were such a good writer. And I was like, okay, like you do not think that. And then he said something like, I just wish I'd had the privilege of teaching you. And I'm like, I was in your history class. (laughs) (laughs) How do you not remember this? So I think, yeah, I mean, what's a good writer? Like it's subjective and that had gone through some edits. And I mean, clearly I care a lot. So, uh, and I mean, thank you for saying it was creative. I didn't think it was like, you know, completely packaged schlock, but it felt embarrassing to read, but whatever. I was like, I'm committed to the exercise of being like, this is what I wrote. I thought it was pretty good at the time. And like, there's some humor there. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I think she made a choice to come on and felt that she had to protect herself and her choice that she made. And so I don't, I, I'm just thrilled that she was willing to do it. It is funny. People will be like, Jeff, I knew you were a really good writer in high school. My clip from high school newspaper, the Mailback High School cross country team beat Brewster yesterday, seven to three. It's like, okay, really? You knew? I, I struggle a lot with like what's good writing, but I think, if I may, that audio, because I listen to a lot of long form on Autumn. Do you ever listen on Autumn? Mm-hmm. And um, I think before people started translating print pieces to audio, you didn't really think about what it sounds like out loud. Right. And so now from doing all these podcasts and thinking about the cadence and do I know how to pronounce that word? And uh, is that too much consonants or too many adverbs or whatever it is? Like, I think my writing has gotten cleaner and has better flow as a result of really thinking about how it would sound if I were speaking it or if, you know, some random person were reading it for me on autumn, like would, mm-hmm. would, the, would it flow? Would it make sense? Would it be visual? Um, I think people are surprised, but audio writing, you know, you want it to be visual and you really, and also you don't get as hemmed in by facts and details because the fact checking is easier when you're just sort of like, it was kind of a mess. You know, it was Y2K era. Like you don't have to be as hyper-specific, but you can make it far more visual and connective that way. So I think working on the audio medium has changed the way that I write. I always say, and I've been a big proponent of this for years, like everything I write, I read out loud yeah. because yeah. you just hear it. You hear the tone, you hear the flow, you hear the beat, you hear everything about it. I never used to do that. Really? I That's just so like funny. looked at the words on the page and, you know, hoped it made sense and hoped the that it fit in the layout. I never thought about like the sonorous or like audio quality of writing ever until I started. Interesting. Making it's a game changer. Wait, so you're responsible for a lot of podcasts, Broken Hearts, The Baron of Botox, Fallen Angels, OC Swingers. What is the goal for someone who has sort of devoted herself in large part to podcasting? I mean, I'm hopeful to get to the TV part. Like I would love for one of these podcasts, um, you know, to make it to the screen in some capacity, TV or film, like that's sort of where the money is. Um, I, I, it is a passion project, but I, I would like to make some money. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, I've made five or six podcasts now I'm working on another currently. um, I don't know that I, you know, another way you could go is like, you could try to create your own production company and have a host of podcasts that you sort of just produce or whatever and scale that way. But I'm not as interested in that. I am just, you know, for better or for worse, a storyteller. 
And I really, I'm not a great manager. I'm not a great business person. Like I really just love getting involved in one story with one set of characters and really just learning that world and everything about it. So for me, I think I'll get, a. am not bored of podcasting. I think, you know, there is no perfect podcast. There's always something that could be better. The sound quality could be better. The sound design could be better. Everything could be better, but I, I really, I'm, I'm excited about hopefully one day being able to translate something to TV and having a meaningful role in the production of that project and sort of getting into TV that way. I think what you said about podcast being the new long form, at least that was the idea. That was my idea too. I was just like, I don't have room to explore the stories I want. No one's greenlighting my weird ideas. Like, But in podcasts, they were. So I just went that route. I just want to say you're a impressive publicist, along with your media package, sent a list of talking points, which, and I would obviously be the worst journalist in the world if I actually read the talking points. I mean, you'd be like, who is this loser? But one of the questions, how can journalism be saved in 2023? It's in bright red. It's under talking points. It's a little peppy question, but I kind of increasingly just feel doomy and gloomy about the whole fucking thing. Um, according to your publicist, you have the answer. So uh, <laughs> how can journalism be saved in 2023? I mean, I think a little honesty about how the sausage is made is a nice first step. Like as every, you know, as big, you know, private equity firms gobble up media entities that were supposed to be independent from one another, you know, Jay Penske's out here owning all the trades in Hollywood. I don't think any of that is evil. I think, you know, it's a survival tactic. We need money to make journalism. So, you know, we need people who are willing to pay for it. But I really do think that this podcast, not that I, you know, patting myself on the back, but as I've gotten more involved in it and made more episodes, it is a rare opportunity to sidestep some of the diplomacy and hoity-toityness that usually accompanies journalism and the creating of journalism to kind of call into question some of the fallibility of the process. Because mm. there's this idea that it's, you know, the fourth estate and you can't wrest power from it. And it is, you know, journalists have ethics and there are rules, but I didn't go to journalism school. Did you? I did not. I've never been handed a Magna Carta of how you're supposed to comport yourself as a journalist. I think a lot of people pull a lot of shit I don't know that everyone remembers what they said on or off the record. You know, like I try to heed those rules as honorably and honestly as I can, but people play it fast and fucking loose and they get stories that people deserve to know. But I also think people deserve to know how stories get got. Like, I don't know. I thought Ronan Farrow, you know, say whatever you want about him, but in Catch and Kill talking about getting the external speakers so that he can extract one of the victim's it was the tape of Harvey Weinstein, Weinstein saying he's used she, he's used to that or whatever it was that was so damning. Like he talked about it as an outsider because he wasn't really a trained journalist. You know, he was sort of like a, a talking head on NBC and he got this story and then he talked about how he got it. And that is helpful. Like, I don't I don't know a lot of journalists who reveal the things that they do to get the story. And I I hope through listening to Kill, do you get tips and tricks? Because I think that's the way that you sort of can learn if you didn't go to these traditional schools and working in a magazine, you learn a lot what not to do. For sure, you get in trouble and you fuck up and people are mad at you. But I don't think there's a lot of like, okay, when you go in the room and you're asking people why they're at this event, get their email addresses and get their birthday, not how old they are, but their birthday yeah. so that you know how old they'll be when the story is published. Like no one ever told me that stuff. So I'd come back and be like, oh, I have a quote from a guy named Ned who was at the thing. And they're like, well, 
how do we reach Ned? And I'm like, oh, like I didn't know. So right, right. I don't know. There's a lot. It is of- interesting when you show up in a magazine. They kind of assume you know what you're doing. Yeah, and yeah. I didn't. Now I sort of feel like I can't really do the work that I loved so much. Like I, I mean. I, I'm not working in a magazine, but I can still really obsess over the nuts and bolts. And um, I can sort of, I don't know, there's a great episode coming up, episode nine of season two with Katie Rossman from the New York Times. And she's talking about a story that she had killed 20 years ago. And she talks all about like how she took her notes and how she organized her research. And like you said, it's like so dorky and it is so dorky, but I also think it's helpful I don't know. I would be thrilled if somewhere down the line, like in J school, they were like, you know, this is part of the syllabus or something. That would be a thrill for me. But I don't so basically know. you're saying the podcast killed can save journalism. That's kind of what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. that's pretty much what we're saying. <laughs> I got to ask you a final question. This is a sure. requisite question on this podcast. Yeah. What's your best confrontation story from your journalism career? I did have a very unsavory experience with a Kardashian once. Please tell. <laughs> I was doing an as told to, which I think are fraught. I think as told to's could use a little explainer, maybe in a future episode of Killed, but that was sort of my bread and butter. Um, and for those who are listening who don't know what that is, it's like, you know, a celebrity or an actor will just come on and be able to speak sort of freely about an event. And then as the writer, you reorganize what they said so that there's like a narrative there and it's chronological and they're not all over the place. But of course, when you do that, you take liberties and nuance is lost and intention is lost and everything gets flattened. And it's like, who, who talks like that? And it's like, no one, because I just reorganized what you said. Um, but I was doing one of those with a Kardashian. I won't name which one, um, but not a Jenner, a Kardashian. So that, okay. that when I was it down and we were talking a lot, it was time to like the 10th anniversary of the show. And we were talking a lot about like the authenticity of what we're seeing and like, but, you know, is that really real? Because X, Y, Z thing happened. And I was just sort of trying to get at like, what is it about this show that we, even though we suspend disbelief and we know it's not real, we think it's real. And the person was like, I don't understand what you're saying. And I was like, I think you do. Cause you know, bit of artifice here. And, and she was like, we have the cameras on every minute of every day. Nothing that's ever been on that show was anything less than truthful. Like how dare you? And I was sort of like, fuck. How do I save this? And I remember I was in the Hamptons where there's bad service. Um, But it's like me being in the Hamptons is funny. And I lost the call (laughs) of this awful, like, you're a liar. No, I'm not. And so (laughs) then, yeah, I think we reconnected. Somehow we hobbled through the end of the interview. It's tragic. She hates me. I'm, I'm in trouble. I can feel it. I get a call from our entertainment director later who was just like, what in the actual fuck did you say? And I was like, nothing. You know, it was the same. I was just trying to get a real conversation going. One where you ask real questions. And it was like pretty clear that that wasn't sort of what this was. And I should have just taken it easy. But there was a moment where it seemed like perhaps they were going to squash the story. Just be like, no, it's not running. I don't care. I don't care what it says. It did run. So I guess if you were a sleuth, you could find out which one it was. But it ran and we got some, you know, reasonable color in there. But for about a week, I was put on ice. I didn't know if it was going to run. I didn't know if I was in trouble. I didn't know what was happening. And it was the worst week. I remember going on like five or six different runs because I was just like, Ugh, I hate this feeling. I just want to shed it, you know, and just like going for a run and just thinking over and over again, like, 
when the call got disconnected and yeah, she was convinced I hung up on her and I didn't, but how do you, uh, even talking about it, I want to just like take a nap. Okay. More likely scenario. You're in Ralph's. You see Dakota Johnson, aisle five. You see this Kardashian in aisle seven. Which one are you going to? You're going to Dakota. Dakota, (laughs) Dakota, it's me. Hey, salad girl. Remember? Yeah. Oh my God. I would like, yeah, I would probably kill myself before saying hello to this Kardashian. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, that's great. Well, listen, I appreciate your time a whole lot. Podcast yeah. is great. Your career is fascinating. I love talking about the shit. I mean, I really do. Ooh, thank you uh, so much for listening and for doing a podcast about journalism. I mean, you understand how that's not a sexy idea. And, you know, I think it was very cool for Audio Chuck, who does, you know, Crime Junkie and all these huge crime shows to take a chance on something as dry and nutritious or, you know, needlessly dorky and cerebral as journalism. But it's been really cool to see people, you know, it's a very common feeling to be like, am I good at my job? Did I just fuck up? What does that mean? Am I a loser? And I think that's the core thing that has started to stick out to me that like even these amazingly accomplished journalists, the interview ends and they're like, did I just blow it? And um, you don't really think about that when it comes to journalism. You just think about like spotlight or whatever, where the person's like, I know what's right. And I don't that's the case. I think I think I actually think it's very interesting. You refer to your editor as a legendary editor. And I think. um, You know, as we get older in this profession, you realize that that whole even legendary thing, like we're all just people trying to get by like and like kids and their parents. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And like I had legendary editors at publishing companies who literally don't work anymore. I had a legendary editor at the Tennessee who hasn't been an editor for 20 years. We just all come back into the abyss eventually. No. And I, you know, sometimes with this show, I'm like, do I even have the right to make it? And do I have the authority or even the experience? Like I can say I worked in magazines for 10 years. That's true. But for some reason, it doesn't feel true because it's me. And I'm, you know, inherently an unreliable narrator, whatever it is. And I, I don't know. I think instead of just pretending none of that's the case, it's fodder for exploration. So it's a show about journalism, but it's also a show about insecurity and ambition and drive and all the things that make us people. And so I'm just excited to talk about it. I'm covered in dog hair. That's cool. That's okay. (laughs) Uh, Thank you. It was great having you on. I very much appreciate it. Nice to meet you. I want to thank today's guest, Justine Harmon, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Justine on Twitter at Justine Harmon. Visit her website, justineharmon.com, and listen to Killed on all of your favorite podcast mediums. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please, please, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I'd be really appreciative. Music is by the one-of-a-kind MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep riding.